Welcome to our continued look at the Race for the White House with Real Clear Politics podcast, In the Arena. I'm correspondent Alexis Simmendinger. In the final 27 days of the election, our reporters and editors are stepping back every Thursday to dissect election developments and take a closer look at 2016 battlegrounds. In our podcast this week, we focused on Wisconsin as an important state with 10 electoral college votes. The Real Clear Politics polling average in the Badger State shows that Hillary Clinton has for months enjoyed a lead against Donald Trump, which stretched this week to nearly seven points. Real Clear's polling analyst David Byler interviewed Patrick Murray, director of the Monmouth University Polling Institute in New Jersey, about the state of the presidential race and the art and science behind this year's wide variety of public polls. Real Clear's co-founder Tom Bevan interviewed Charles Franklin, political science professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who specializes in the statistical analysis of polling and election results. We welcome your feedback at realclearpolitics.com, just as we do every week. First up, you'll hear from David Byler, who discussed the future of the public polling industry with Monmouth's Patrick Murray. So, this week we have Patrick Murray on the show, and we're going to talk about polling. Patrick is the director of the Monmouth University poll, and if you check our averages, you're probably familiar with them. He is a really great pollster, and I know that whenever a Monmouth poll gets published, the whole Real Clear Politics team pays really close attention to this. So I'm really excited to talk to him about the state of the race, about polling in general, and just get his insights, because polling is such a big part of what we do at Real Clear Politics. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Patrick. Hey, it's my pleasure, David. All right. So first question, uh, our listeners and our readers really love polls. They want to know who's up, who's down, who's going to win, all of that sort of thing. So I think it would be pretty interesting to sort of pop the hood open a bit and tell people how a poll is made. And what I'm looking for is, I guess, a a step-by-step process. If you could go through for us, how does a poll go from being just an idea or just a desire to know what the state of the race is in a certain state or in the country as a whole, all the way up to the numbers that people see in the final report or displayed on Real Clear Politics or across these other news outlets? So any details you have about that process, really appreciated. Uh, Yeah, sure. You know, outside of an election season, um, we're doing policy polls. We're doing, you know, uh, just general um, taking the temperature of the public, how they feel about what issues of the day are, and also how they feel about the political leaders, the president and so forth, governor and senate if we're in a, a particular state. And those are, those are fairly normal. You know, how's the economy doing? What's the direction of the country? And then we have big events that hit. Um, certainly, we been doing a lot of polling about issues around race and policing over the past year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been doing a lot of polling around uh, the mood of the country. And one of those things is trying to figure out what, what are the questions that you can really get at that help us to better understand what the mood of this electorate is. I mean, we know what the outcomes are right now because of uh, <laughs> the, the debate that's going on in the campaign itself. Right. But how did we get to this point? What's, what was bubbling under that surface? And, and that's really actually what drives me. I mean, so I'm the kind of guy who likes to go out and, and just listen to what people are talking about. Uh, I know you turn on the cable news, and I, I know what all the pundits are saying, but that's not necessarily how people are talking about on the ground. And, uh, for example, before we started polling this election season, uh, I went out to Iowa. I went out to New Hampshire, and I actually sat down and talked to 
voters out there. So who are you mm-hmm. supporting? Who do you think you're going to support? Why? What are the issues? What's driving you? What do you really feel um, that, that's important to you? Uh, so that's how I come about figuring out, okay, what I'm going to poll about. And so, you know, let's just take the, the events of this past week. Um, we had a schedule of states that we were going to poll this week, um, and we totally shook that up because yeah. of uh, what had happened the week before with uh, the, the, the Trump tape and then, right. and then the debate coming up. So, uh, And also the, the, actually the hurricane, because we were going to go down south initially uh, into the South Atlantic there in Florida, North Carolina, and so obviously didn't do that. Um, so those things can actually have an impact. But uh, we wanted to see specifically this past week, how did this impact uh, Trump's support, not in the swing states, but in the red states? Hmm. Uh, that, was, that, was our, you know, so that was our question. Are these Republicans who are defecting from him, is, is that really having an impact anywhere? And not just on him, but on those important down-ballot races. Uh, there are a couple of particularly key Senate races in some of these red states where yeah. Trump was significantly ahead, uh, but this, the, the Senate races themselves are close. So those are the things that kind of go into us deciding what to ask about. And obviously, the questions that we ask are, uh, does what Trump said have any impact on your view of not only just Donald Trump, but on the, on the Senate candidates who are supporting him or the Senate candidates who have moved away from him? So those are the things that kind of that, that, that toss and turn and, and percolate. Once we get to that point, then it's a difference of, and, and all pollsters probably come to it in a very similar way in terms of what's, what is actually percolating out there. Uh, and then it's a question of, well, what methods are you going to use? So our method in election polling is to use uh, samples uh, that are drawn from actual uh, registered voter lists in each of the states where we poll. Uh, in a presidential election, it's a little harder because one of the things that we know about presidential elections is that people who vote less often but only vote in presidential elections were less likely to be able to get telephone numbers for them that are accurate right. from the lists. So we actually supplement that with a, a sample of cell phones that are, are selected through a random digit dial, and then we use a few screens to figure out whether they truly are an actual voter and fold that into our registered voter list. But the registered voter list itself is, a, is really the meat and potatoes of how we figure out who these voters are, where they're coming from, whether they actually represent, our final sample represents the electorate as a whole, uh, and then from that, we dial and, and do, we do telephone calls, so it's all live interviewer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and then look at some of the key groups that have been uh, jumping out recently. Uh, and it's different state by state. Some states, there's some real regional, real important regional differences. For example, in Pennsylvania, you want to know what's going on in those Philadelphia suburbs because we right. know from history that's where uh, presidential races are won or lost. So that's a, that's a great answer. So you, you call these places and then... Um, one other step that happens that we a little bit touched on, you also do some form of weighting, right, to make sure right. that your population matches the some demographics that you think is the reality of the electorate, right? Right. And, and here's the key, and this is one thing that a lot of people don't understand. This is one thing that particularly some of the folks who have been unhappy with some of our recent polls that have shown Hillary Clinton doing well, obviously some Trump supporters, and I've not been happy about this, they look at the party identification split and they just say that's not right without really understanding what that is or what it mm-hmm. means. And so we have a lot of really good information both from the census and from the voter list yeah. on what the pool of registered voters actually should look like by age, by gender, by race, 
and also in states that have party registration, what their party registration is, which is different from what their party identification is. Right. So party registration is, is are you registered with a party? Um, and even in states that don't have party registration, such as Ohio, we can glean information from that list that says, well, have they voted in a primary in the past, and which primaries have they voted in? It's one of the things why we saw a big change in, uh, in Ohio recently in terms of that party um, de facto registration that went more Republican than it had been in the past because a lot of people came out to vote for John Kasich, their governor, in the Republican presidential primary. Hmm. And so they're listed as having been a Republican voter most recently, uh, even though they might not be a Republican voter normally. They just did that for that one, one instance. So we, we saw that jump in our registered voter list, but we didn't see it. Uh, a significant change in what people said that they thought of themselves politically when we asked them, in politics today, do you think of yourself as a Democrat, Independent, or Republican? And uh, that's that attitudinal question that people yeah. answer based on how they feel that day. And that's the one that, that most polls actually report in terms of saying, you know, who's ahead, who's, a, who's um, behind among their own fellow partisans. And that number, does, uh, in Ohio, for example, there's more people who are considered registered as Republican because they voted in a Republican primary, but more people who call themselves Democrat than Republican. Uh, another case in point is like Missouri is like that too, where there's usually a, just a one point or two point advantage for one party or the other on party identification, but there's a significant advantage on party registration. So some of our readers know this, but there's error associated with every poll. There's a margin of error, which basically comes from the fact that polls are randomized subsamples of the country that are made to look like whatever population they're trying to approximate. They're uh, trying to be reflective maybe of the country as a whole or as the electorate, but there are random samples. So sometimes you might, uh, through no fault of your own, poll and pick a Clinton-leaning or a Trump-leaning group of people. And there's just some amount of error associated with that. So a lot of people know about that random sort of statistical error in polling. But it seems like with uh, parts of the process that you talked about before, that there are other choices that you might be able to make that are uh, defensible choices that maybe other pollsters use that also might change your numbers, maybe how you define what a likely voter is or uh, what you think the weights on your poll should be and what you think the electorate should look like. So I'm interested uh, beyond sort of the statistical margin of error that gets reported with uh, every poll that gets published, uh, what extra error or differences are there out there? Are there other errors that aren't captured by that? Or what's sort of the, the range of outcomes? Sure. I mean, to be honest with you, we report the sampling margin of error. That's that plus or minus that every number that everybody sees because that's become expected. That's, mm -hmm. that's part of transparency. You report that. The issue is that really is very, that's almost the smallest part of the error, and that number might not even be meaningful. Uh, I think there was a recent uh, study done by, I think it was Andrew Gelman, who yeah. estimated that the real error is probably twice what the margin of error is just due to sampling. And the reason why I say that the sampling margin of error probably doesn't apply anymore is because it's based on a theoretical precept that if you draw randomly a thousand people out of a, a population of one million or 300 million, it doesn't even matter how, how big the population is, but if you randomly draw a thousand people, 
then then you're, you're pretty sure that you're going to be within plus or minus three percentage points of the actual value uh, 19 out of 20 times uh, that you pull that sample. The problem is it requires you to have those original 1,000 that you've randomly pulled. What happens with telephone polling now is that um, nine out of 10 times the, the, the person that we want isn't there and we have to go back into the sample again and replace them with somebody else uh, or go back into the population and replace them with somebody else, which means we're not truly doing random sampling. It's because we are then selecting a random sample, then we have to start replacing them because they're not participating in the, in the survey. So uh, there are many other sources of sample uh, of error and if you look at most uh, pollsters report this is a sampling error and by the way there's a lot of other error that could be attributed to, to um, polling we just have no way to calculate that other error yeah um, so one of the things that I have come to is that well how can you reduce the error particularly when you're doing a poll of likely voters that's one of the things that we saw recently, but late in the summer, when a lot of pollsters started switching from registered voters to likely voters, there was a big shift in what their margins were, which is not a, wasn't a big shift statistically, but it certainly looks like a big shift to people who are following these numbers. Uh, and a part of it is because many of them who use just random digit dialing to get their samples use a whole series of questions to try to figure out who really is a likely voter, and they might use a cutoff, they might apply a weight depending on how likely they are, whether they know where their polling place is, whether they, you know, and which is kind of going out the window with the number of people who are voting by mail. Uh, you know, all these, these questions that Gallup came up with, George Gallup came up with back in the 1930s uh, and came up with this kind of index. It, it, it's not helping anymore because these self-reports really are unreliable. And one of the things that came out of a Pew study that was done recently was uh, Scott Keeter, I can't remember exactly how he put this uh, when, when it came out, is that if you can remove the number of confounding variables, you can improve your accuracy. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think using list sample does. Yeah. I don't have, particularly when we're doing off-year elections, when we know, you know who is likely to vote in, in a midterm when, when turnout is lower, is that that... That, that information that you glean from the voting list about what their voting history has been removes a lot of that confounding information. Uh, and that's why I think the list samples are getting, uh, list surveys that use list samples for likely voter polls are getting much better uh, now than the, the random digit dial ones. That makes a lot of sense. That's, that's super helpful. And it kind of uh, sort of leads into another question that I was hoping to ask about that I think a lot of our listeners are interested in, which is some people, and you can argue this both ways, and I'm briefly going to do that. Um, some people might say that uh, polling is in a little bit of a crisis. There were a number of uh, misses in terms of election polling in the 2014 United States Senate races. Uh, the polls underestimated what a number of the Republicans actually ended up uh, showing in the final election results. You had the, I think it was the 2015 uh, United Kingdom general election. Um, and, you know, people talk about some of the things that we've uh, touched on, the, the non-response rates, uh, people using landlines less than they have before, things along those lines to sort of string together a story of uh, polling being in kind of a state of crisis. Now, you could also argue that 
polling did a really good job of predicting the results of the 2016 primary elections in general, and that they typically uh, did a pretty good job of hitting their mark and calling the winner, so on and so forth. So I'm just wondering, with sort of all of that uh, swirling around out there, and with you actually directing a poll, I'm interested in your perspective on what's the state of polling right now? How how good is it? Are you worried or concerned about some of these issues that are being brought up? Or is it something that in general you feel is overblown or maybe somewhere in the middle? Uh, yeah, there certainly have been some problems. And, and there have been when when you have nearly all the polls making a miss in one direction, which happened with Brexit, um, that then there's says there's something systematic going on there. And you got to figure out what it is. Uh, you pointed out 2016 uh, primaries here uh, were pretty good. Then the 2014 uh, general election, uh, most people, uh, most pollsters' uh, uh, results were, were overly democratic versus what the result actually was. And so there's a question: Is it about polling, or is it that that things are? Uh, is it about our sampling methods, or do things now move much more quickly? Uh, at least even at the margins, because remember, a difference between you know getting in the poll uh, right or wrong could come down to just a difference of, of two or three percentage points on the margin of victory, mm-hmm. and and that could mean that there there are there is a growing number of people um, who are late deciders or, or are shifters. So if mm-hmm. we saw that we saw that in, uh, for example, in Iowa with the Republican um, uh, caucus there. Now in the caucuses notoriously hard to uh, poll. Right. But most polls had Trump up ahead. A couple at the very last minute had uh, had um, had Cruz ahead, and he, and he went on winning it. So everybody was asking, well, why did most of those polls, those Trump polls, miss it? And I actually went, we had stopped interviewing, I think, six or seven days before the caucus. We went back and re-interviewed the people that we had talked to, and sure enough, enough of them told us that they had changed their mind when we calculated it back in. We had Cruz's margin of victory. Hmm. Uh, you know, so people are are shifting, and if even if ninety percent, if you can predict ninety percent of, of voters and what they're going to do weeks away from the election, if that ten percent is still liable to shift uh, a lot, that that can change your margins even in the last few hours. So I think that's one of the things that's happening. Now the other thing that's happening is that we're having, and I think this is an opportunity for polling, is testing out a whole bunch of different methodologies. As I said. I don't think sampling, the margin of sampling error has any real meaning anymore because of our low response rates. Uh, so why not look at modeling, which is actually basically what George Gallup initially did mm-hmm. uh, when he started out polling, was, okay, let's create a sample that looks like America. And that's what these online polls are trying to do. The good ones are trying to do this. And we're seeing a lot of evidence that suggests that um, they're doing a decent job of it. Uh, so we haven't, you know, figured out exactly how this is going to work in the long run, but clearly we, we're going to go to some sort of polling operation where we can really get to people individually, uh, whether it's through all cell phones or text or email or some other digital format. And the question is, do you get better results when somebody answers you when they're talking to you on the phone or when you give them the opportunity to punch the results in? Uh, whether it's on their phone or whether it's uh, uh, online uh, on, a, on a browser, uh, web browser. So, you know, those are some of the good things. And the other thing, though, is that because of this, we're, we're seeing a lot of, I think, bad polling as well. I think that's a problem 
this year is that we're seeing a plethora of polling. Everybody's trying to get into the game. Some folks who haven't had no experience with polling are getting into this. Uh, others who do have experience but are releasing things that I think are, are fairly experimental mm-hmm. um, that don't have a track record of actually working um, and uh, you know releasing them and they're carrying the same weight or similar weight uh, in how the punditry is talking about these as, as polls that do have track records of working. Mm-hmm. I want to ask about kind of the 2016 race in general. So I do data journalism. I do a lot of math. I do a lot of statistics about sort of what's happening in the election. Uh, And oftentimes polls are kind of my individual data points that I use. And I feel like that gives me a certain lens that I process, you know, these events with. And um, I talk to the traditional reporters here at Real Clear Politics, and they, you know, go out and uh, interview people at rallies and talk to elected officials. And that gives them kind of a different lens to process this election through. And we end up telling uh, kind of the story of the election in different ways. And so I'm interested in what sort of the the pollster's perspective and way of telling sort of the story of the 2016 election so far is sort of from your perspective uh, with the data you have. I'm, I'm just interested, one, in you telling as much of that story as you would like to tell, but uh, two, specifically, uh, are there any points where looking at polling data and being able to um, <clears throat> see these individual responses and have thousands of interviews, so on and so forth, are there any things that have revealed other storylines to you that may have been missed by uh, people with my job or traditional reporters? And are there any things that may be uh, narratives out there that are debunked by evidence that you've seen because you're a pollster? So any sort of insight you have on that would be appreciated. Yeah, I think a lot of us actually miss stories, included, pollsters included, because we were looking at our history at the advent of, um, of the Donald Trump phenomenon, is that, you know, like other, like pundits out there, pollsters also look at, you know, what we've done in the past and what's moved the needle. And um, Donald Trump moved the needle in ways that we've never seen before with a, with a typical politician. That meant that we had to start asking questions about, well, what is, what's the underlying reason for this? Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, and the initial um, answers were just superficial. People want a wall built. They're anti-immigrant. And I can say there's, there's got to be more to this than, than just that. Um, and I don't think we've actually gotten to the answer yet, but I started, like, uh, I started pulling our, our poll data together just to kind of get a sense of, What's, what's really going on? So, you know, depending on which poll you look at, anywhere from a quarter to a third of voters have an, a negative view of both of these presidential candidates. And we've never seen that before. I went back to exit polls going back into the 1970s and any place that I could find where they asked favorability of the two presidential candidates and, and cross-tabulated them to say, okay, what's the group that, that's in that cell that says, I don't like either one of them? And it was... I think once it got close to 9%, which would have been 1992, every other election it was 5% or less. I mean, so mm. that tells you that this is unprecedented. Yeah. Um, but, it, but is it just about these candidates? And I don't think it is. And I think that's what we have to be clear about. Um, there's a, a sense of um, underlying anger at um, the system itself. And that the system doesn't work, and, and it's different anger t- depending on what group of pro- people you're talking to. But it's anywhere from 
Pennsylvania to uh, Black Lives Matter. There's this, this current that something's that something's leaving us behind, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what we're trying. That's what I think we need to capture to try to figure this out. Now, one of the things that I have figured out is that we, we've seen in asking these questions is that Republican-leaning uh, voters are much more uh, unhappy and dissatisfied with their party's leadership than Democrats are. And when we looked at it, and one of the things that we haven't talked about is that it's not just the Trump supporters who are unhappy with it. And this has been true from day one. It's also been the more moderates who have been unhappy with it. And and I, I think this is a this is a question for leadership, and I think polls can help reveal this, is that there's something that you're doing that's not leading these people. Yeah. That's that's the problem. Is that as, you know the, the term leader means you have to lead them in some way, shape, or form, and you're not doing that because if you're getting a very broad-based level of uh, disgust with your leadership, then that suggests that you're simply not leading. And I don't think that I don't think that, that the folks, particularly in the Republican Party, and it's true in the Democrat as well, but uh, much much more so in the Republican Party, as we can see from the polls, uh, that suggests that. Uh, they're not, uh, they don't have all their ducks in order. Great. So uh, last question, and I've kind of gotten into a little bit of a habit with uh, this last question and what I'm going to ask guests. It's kind of the same question, but uh, translated to whatever topic that we're talking about that week. First, imagine that you're a pollster who's around in the 1960s or the 1970s, and you have basically the exact same job. You're director of uh, polling institute then. And uh, then suppose in 1976, you suddenly uh, go into a coma or move to Barbados or something happens 40 years ago, and you don't look at polling numbers for decades and decades or American politics for a long time. And then in 2016, you decide that it's time to come back to America or you wake up for your coma or whatever. And I'm interested in what would sort of surprise you about changes in the field of polling itself, changes in the country. Um, what what would be the big differences that jump out to you? And what would be the things that you sort of would have predicted? And the second half of that question is uh, kind of the reverse of it. We've touched on this a little bit, but... Uh, Imagine, you know, you hit the lottery tomorrow and you decide to buy a specific island and never touch uh, polling or American politics or uh, American society in general for another two decades. And you come back and it's 2036 and you start to look at the numbers and you start to assess what's going on in the field of polling. What what do you think it would look like a few decades out in the future to have your job then. So um, yeah, just the past and the future of uh, polling and what you've seen is what I'm interested in. Well, I take the past question first. So if I suddenly woke up from 
just because they want to know who's on the other end because they don't have caller ID. Hmm. And the other thing is, oh, you want my opinion? Absolutely, I'll give it to you. Hmm. Um, so that's a huge, huge culture shift. And, and it's obviously a culture shift across a lot of different aspects of life, but it's affected polling in a particular way. And that's why the margin of sampling error is probably meaningless at this point. Uh, the, the thing about politics itself that would surprise me would be the, uh, the amount of polarization hmm. uh, that we have here. That it used to be that you would have lean Democrats and lean Republicans who were unpredictable on certain issues, meaning they were Democrat most of the time, but a lot of other ones that they were Republican. So even though polls today still report, you know, a third of, of the electorate is, is independent, that's really not true. It's less than half of that, because if you get them to say they lean Democrat or lean Republican, you can predict that they're going to be Democrat or Republican on almost every issue um, because of how polarized we are. We're the, one of the most interesting things I remember from the 1970s in terms of a polling artifact was uh, wage and price uh, controls. Now, Democrats were for wage and price controls. Labor would like to see wage and price controls because of their constituency back in the 70s. Republicans, because of their constituency, no, you let business do what they want. There shouldn't be any wage and price control. Richard Nixon implements wage and price controls, and suddenly Republicans' opinions in the polls of wage and price controls changes. I don't think you could do that today. I don't think somebody like a President Nixon could make those kinds of changes without having to pay a price. Hmm. I don't think they could lead public opinion in that way uh, on those issues because of how polarized we are. So that's one of the, those are the big changes that I see. Now, looking ahead uh, 20 years from now, I, I guess it's more of a hope than anything else. Um, I hope that we are less polarized. I hope we realize that it doesn't make any sense to be that polarized. It doesn't get anything done, and it just makes us angrier. Uh, on the methodological part of, of polling, I, I do think we're going to see um, ways in which we uh, are doing instantaneous polls with people because we have ways to contact um, a, a truly representative sample of people individually, digitally, uh, almost uh, right away, whenever something mm-hmm. happens. Uh, and so I think we can get a lot of instant polls that, that really do uh, reflect uh, you know, the public. And I think we might get to a point where um, people are, I mean, maybe it's a hope, where people are, again, more willing to share their opinion. I don't know. Um, you know, the direction that we're going is that people want to, want to stay by themselves. You know, they want to move into neighborhoods where people think like themselves. I mean, we've had this self-selecting. Um, and one of the issues that we have with uh, gerrymandered uh, districts, and we can see this in the polling, is that people are self-selecting to move into areas where people are like them politically in such a way that you can't not draw a gerrymandered district anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we'll see um, as, as these shifts happen. And Tom Bevan asked Charles Franklin, the co-developer of Pollster.com, to help translate Wisconsin's election outlook, as well as recent polling data nationwide that may predict if Trump or Clinton grabbed the advantage as early voting began before November 8th. One of the things that really fascinates me about uh, what we're seeing this year with the way that these candidates are dividing the electorate is that, you know, if you go back and look, Iowa and Wisconsin have voted since 1992, have been really close to each other uh, within a couple percentage points. 
And I just I just dug up this, you know, uh, it was two points in 92, 1.96. They were basically both tied in 2000. They were two points apart in 2004, four points apart in, in 08, uh, one point apart in 12. And this year they're 12 points off, or 10 points off. Right. According to, right. You know, I was Trump plus five and Wisconsin's Clinton plus five. So what yeah. what is going on up there that is making uh, Wisconsin – function um you know differently than iowa and and ohio for that matter well i want to know what's wrong with iowa uh you know home state uh no i think i think it's a great point that the two have separated um i'm not sure i know the answer to why we're seeing that separation um wisconsin of course has gone democratic since 84, and so I think a slim Democratic lead here in Wisconsin in a presidential election year is more or less what you would expect before you knew anything about the the race, or you know, or the candidates or whatnot. Um, and so I don't think, and, and you know, back up a second, Obama by 14 here in 08 and by seven here in. Uh, in 12, I would, I think that we are not too far off from what you might expect. If anything, I think we're a little bit tighter. Um, in our last poll, it was uh, a two-point with the head-to-head and likely voters in a three-point Clinton lead with the, the four-party vote. Right. Again, likely voters. And it basically unchanged from a month before in late August, but much tighter than it was after the convention in early August. So I think we have seen some tightening of the race here. Uh, Clinton had bigger margins throughout the winter and spring in the head-to-head than she has now. Um, So in that sense, maybe we have drifted a little in a Republican direction while Iowa has moved rather more dramatically in a Republican direction. Um, but in our case, that's still maintaining a, at least a slim um, uh, Clinton lead here. Basically, we have a real big swing between midterm and presidential year electorates. Uh, the difference between 3 million turnout in a presidential and 2.4 or 2.5 in a midterm and that makes a big difference in our politics uh, in a presidential electorate that normally looks a lot more democratic. Talk to me a little bit about Obama, um, because he really did sort of blow the doors off there in in mm-hmm. 08. Um, is it, what was it about Obama that, that Wisconsinites really fell for um, and sure. tilted that state blue and, and was that unique to him, and, and we're just seeing a reversion to the mean? Right. Um, or or is that, was that a fundamental shift that, that is going to, um, you know, carry Hillary Clinton? Sure. Um, I don't think you can point to a truly fundamental shift here in, in the sense of did partisan identification shift dramatically? No, it didn't. Democrats have about a plus or plus seven advantage in partisanship, depending on whether you're including leaners or not. 
Uh, it's plus four without leaners. It's about plus six or seven with leaners. Um, and that hasn't really expanded much over the last, I don't know, since, say, 2000 or so. So I don't think we see a fundamental realignment there. I think in 08, you obviously had the combination of a very unpopular incumbent president and party. Uh, you had the recession. All of those individual things found a very responsive audience in, in Wisconsin. But still, Obama won by seven here when he was winning by less than four nationwide in 12. Right. So it is clear that he maintained strength here that was a little higher than in the country as a whole. Young people are a clear explanation for that in the big Madison rallies, big turnouts, big turnouts in college towns certainly helped Obama. Um, and uh, Milwaukee, the city, the urban areas of Milwaukee, um, and I don't mean that as a uh, euphemism for race because the white areas of Milwaukee vote heavily for Obama, too. It's that urban mentality of, of wanting to be in an urban place that helps him there. Um, but not to take away on the Republican side in this sense that the deepest red areas of the state maintained a strong Romney vote four years ago and maintain their exceptionally high turnout level. So in that, Obama's victory maybe is more to be seen in successfully mobilizing Democrats around the state and winning a majority of uh, independent and moderate voters rather than a failure of the Republicans to compete in their strongholds. This year, there's more of a question about that because Trump is having trouble mobilizing support or winning support in the Milwaukee suburb, which surely is one of the reasons he was in Waukesha a week or two ago. Right. And and conversely, are you finding that Hillary Clinton is having the same troubles that we've seen other places with, with millennials in Madison area and with African-Americans yeah. perhaps in Milwaukee? Exactly. Uh, less so with the African-Americans in Milwaukee. I think she's doing fine there. But um, in Dane County, Madison, mm -hmm. um, when we aggregate the last three polls, uh, Gary Johnson is running in second place. Trump is in third place by only a percentage point, but still it's eye-catching. And Clinton's getting about 55% in Dane County. Uh, now, she should be getting 65 or 70 percent. Mm -hmm. So that's the effect of young people who are not attracted to her are pining away for, for uh, Sanders and are then gravitating to Johnson and to a lesser degree Stein. They're by no means going to Trump. But as long as they have third party candidates that they are, are supporting and also a fair percentage of them high teens percentage of them saying, I don't know who I'll vote for. That is holding down Clinton's um, expected vote margin in Dane County, which is the second biggest repository of Democratic votes after Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. Also, Clinton is underperforming, notably, or maybe Trump is overperforming, in the Green Bay media market. Um, that's an area where Obama lost by only a couple of points to Romney, 
but Trump is running pretty strongly ahead in the Green Bay area. Uh, I think partly that reflects just how negatively Hillary Clinton is seen in that area, uh, as opposed to Obama, who maybe wasn't loved and embraced there, but certainly didn't have the negativity that, that Clinton suffers from. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the factoids, which is no longer quite true, but it was in June, in our June sample, we had among Republicans 1% favorable to Clinton. <laughs> it's a little hard to win a lot of crossover votes when you're seeing that negatively. It's gone up a little bit, but I think she's still under 5%, certainly under 10% favorable among Republicans. And, so, and what what about the... exceptionally negative that way. And how is Trump doing consolidating the Republican vote? Obviously, it was a state, yeah. you know, primary-wise, and you've got the never-Trump crowd, Charlie Sykes, all those guys. Uh, he, give me your yeah, sense of where those exactly. folks are. He's done actually pretty well on that score, with the exception of that region around Milwaukee, the, the Milwaukee suburbs. Uh, there he really is. Excuse me, suffering um, a shortfall in support. Um, but in the state as a whole, uh, he's getting within 5 or 8% of party loyalty among Republicans compared to what Clinton is getting among Democrats. So he's a shade behind versus statewide, but not hugely behind. Um, the issue is that even though he's winning in the Milwaukee suburbs, he's only winning by a little bit, and he ought to be winning by a lot. It's kind of the reverse of Clinton and Dade County. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the sort of obvious comparison. But those Milwaukee suburbs have not only very high Republican Party votes normally, but they also have tremendously high turnout rates. So it's a double whammy if you're most populous, most Republican areas are falling short on loyalty, at least, and we don't yet know if they'll fall short on turnout. Um, Maybe the only surprise is that Trump is not winning the rural area of the state, the north and western part of the state. Mm -hmm. There, two of them are running about evenly. And Gary Johnson's doing a bit better than in statewide uh, numbers. So, what do you attribute that to? Um, partly it's the heterogeneity of the area. That western part of the state includes La Crosse, which has become increasingly Democratic in recent years, really almost solid. It's not solidly Democratic the way Dane County and Milwaukee are, but it's very, very much leaning Democratic now. And also, uh, Eau Claire in the north is a college town that turns in a pretty strong Democratic performance. So when you're looking at the north and the west, you're mixing those more Democratic areas with the more Republican areas in Wausau and uh, the uh, Twin Cities suburbs, uh, where we have a couple of counties that are, you know, suburbs of, of Minneapolis. Mm. Um so maybe if we pull those apart a little bit, you'd see Trump doing better in the more purely Republican rural areas up there. And finally, there are Ashland and Bayfield counties remain Democratic bastions on Lake Superior. So there are some, you know, there's some heterogeneity in that area. 
what about the Senate race? Um, you know, I was actually a little bit surprised that that Ron Johnson was running as poorly as he has been. I mean, in a lot of these states, you know, the Republicans have been outpacing Trump, uh, and Johnson's one of the only candidates in the country who, who's actually running behind Trump. Um, right. What's going on there? It's an unusual race in some ways. Um, first off, it's unusual because you so rarely get rematches at the Senate level, right? Mm-hmm. You see those at the House level from time to time. It's pretty rare for a defeated incumbent senator to have a rematch six years later. So that's one unusual thing, obviously. Um, I have yet to see a poll from the state by anybody that shows Johnson ahead. Uh, the magnitude of the lead varies, but even the polls that Johnson's campaign or super PAC have put out, you know, have publicly released, have shown him narrowly behind. Uh, and, and I know you know the uh, both Senate committees pulled ad buys here this week, so it seems like they're reading those tea leaves as mm-hmm. well. I, I think there are a couple of underlying things, but it's still a little surprising. One is that even when he was defeated, Feingold still had a surprisingly high favorability in the state uh, in 2010. Um, Now, I I hasten to add, I wasn't polling then. This is based on CNN polls in the state Mm -hmm. in 2010. Um, But he had a, a small net favorable rating even when he was going down to defeat. And normally when an incumbent loses like that, especially a long-term incumbent, you would have expected his favorability to be deeply negative, and it simply wasn't. So that's the combination of the 2010 wave that swept in so many Republicans. A very low turnout midterm, only 2.1 million votes cast, compared to 2.4 in 2014, for example, in that midterm. Um so it was a low turnout. It was a wave election for Republicans. Feingold ran a fairly lackluster campaign. Um, seemed to be a campaign in search of a theme. I think even his supporters have said, said that. Uh, and Johnson was the right guy at the right time. The earnest businessman motivated for his issue concerns about primarily at that point uh, uh, the deficit and to some extent health care. Uh, reform um, and you know so he really hit the right moment but in the time since Johnson has had some problems developing a relationship with the uh, the state you see that in his don't know rate on the favorability don't know enough to rate him or don't know has been over 30% his entire term and is still at 30% a month and a half away from the election when we did our last poll mm-hmm. um, in, in mid-September. Um, now, Feingold has been out of office for six years, but has a 20 to 25% don't-know rate. So he's better known, even though not a currently sitting senator. And Johnson, while his net favorable has been roughly balanced in some polls, he's slightly more favorable than unfavorable. In others, he's slightly more unfavorable, but it's not far from an even balance. Whereas Feingold has a pretty strong net favorable view, again, despite the fact that he was defeated 
The last part is more inside baseball. I think that uh, Johnson spent a lot of his early, the early years of his term, focused on issues in Washington and not tending to batters back home, both in the public level in terms of going out and doing a lot of constituent events and so on. But he also um, didn't attend to the interest groups in the state as much as they would normally expect him to. And, and that, you know, that doesn't affect the, elect, the electorate as a whole, but it may also have uh, dampened enthusiasm for him um, compared to what it might normally be. Well, let me just say that Johnson in the last two or three years has been paying a lot more attention to home and has been spending a lot more time here. Um, but it may have been, you know, he kind of got off to a tepid start and has had trouble making up for it since. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess the last thing I would say is that, that Senate race has also seemed to be a little bit of a race searching for a key issue. Um, uh, each candidate has sort of a smattering of issues that they emphasize. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to pick out a central organizing theme to the race. You know, so in 2010, it was deficit and health care reform. Now, it's, Feingold has five or six issues he talks about. Johnson has five or six issues he talks about. It's really hard to characterize that race. It's absolutely clearly about one major thing. Mm -hmm. um, last thing, and then I really will quit. Feingold does a lot better on cares about people like you than Johnson does. And that reflects Johnson's difficulty bonding with people. Uh, he doesn't automatically come across as a warm and fuzzy guy. Uh, and the campaign clearly has reacted to that in the last two or three weeks. They've been, in, been running two major ad buys that emphasize Johnson's efforts on behalf of a couple adopting a child from somewhere in Africa, and another one that deals with his support for a employment program in Milwaukee for African Americans. And so it's clear the campaign has been focusing on that, but again, it's rather late to change those perceptions of him, I think.